Okay, it's been a, a few weeks since we were last in Paul's first letter to Timothy, um, but we, uh, Lord willing, are going to conclude the first letter uh, this morning. So if you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll see what the, the Lord has for us here. And let's just uh, commit our hearts and this, uh, this study to the Lord. Shall we just pray one more time? Father, we do just ask for you to speak to us now through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that the, the things that are spiritual are received spiritually. They, they can't be understood by the natural man or the natural mind. Um, so, Father, give us understanding, we pray, that we would comprehend the lessons that you are teaching us here, that, Lord, they would not just be academic things, but, Lord, things that would really truly shape our walk and our, our understanding of you. Um, that, Lord, as we walk by faith, uh, Lord, in your grace, these things would be an encouragement and a strength to us. So, Father, we just give you this time now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul's gone through a whole bunch of things now speaking to the church, sorry, speaking to, to Timothy about the church, about order and uh, discipline within the church, about the importance of doctrine, um, uh, dealing with the uh, type of problems and challenges that uh, Timothy as a young pastor is going to face. As we've said a number of times, Timothy um, took over this uh, fellowship, this church, Ephesus, and we know from Revelation it was a great church in many regards, particularly in regard to doctrine. Um, but sometimes the danger is when we focus a lot on doctrine and getting everything right, we can suddenly lose our first love. You know, the, the, the details become so important that they should become more important than the relationship we have with Jesus. And that should always be the central part of our walk with him, our time together, our fellowship. Uh, it's all about Jesus. Uh, it's not just about getting it right. Although it's important that we do get it right because if we don't, we can get led astray. And Paul has already warned about those that would come in the latter times. Um, with seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and all these things that he's spoken about in chapter 4. Um, we've looked at that already. So there's lots of warnings, lots of instruction, um, and then we're going to conclude now as we go into chapter 6. And the first thing that Paul says to Timothy is, remember that you're to be a good example wherever you are. And the first place he starts is by talking about our masters, Okay our bosses, people we work for, people that we serve in any kind of capacity. Now, the problem is a lot of those people that we do serve are worldly. They're not Christian. But Paul says this, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. He doesn't say, if you're serving a master who is godly, then serve him well. He doesn't say, if you're serving a master that treats you well and gives you the things you want and acts honorably, then do a good job for him. He just says, let as many servants as are under the yoke. Count their own masters worthy of all honor. He doesn't say whether they deserve it or not, but that's the attitude that we're to have. Breaking it down to the days in which we live now, if we're working for a boss, we should do a good job. We owe our employers a minute, sorry, 60 minutes for every hour that we're paid. You know, and we should be different. The world should look at us and, and see there's something different about the way we approach everything in life. But employment and the way we work for our bosses should be one area. I was very pleased some years ago, I was working um, back for BT in an office in Kent. 
and um, the chap that recruited me um, had gone on and recruited another uh, Christian who I didn't know was a Christian until he started working for us and we became good friends. Um, uh, And Paul and I used to talk about the Lord in the office a lot, um, but we also used to work very hard. And our boss came to us one day and said, you know, he said, next time he said, I recruit somebody, I'm just going to recruit Christians. He said, you two work so much harder. Well, what a great testament that was. You know, we, we weren't just in it to, to get what we could out of it. We understood from Scripture that we're to do all things as unto the Lord. And that's how we should be. You know, and it doesn't matter whether our bosses are deserving of that, that honor. It's a principle that we are going to do that because we're doing it as if we're doing it for Christ. And it's such an important thing that those that look on should be able to see that there's a difference, there's an integrity, there's a, an element of, of trust uh, that our bosses can have in us. I remember Ron Matson uh, used to be the pastor here, was speaking once, uh, and he was talking about this type of issue. Uh, and he said that his boss had got a, a, a phone call to come in for his boss. And uh, his boss was in the office, but he didn't want to take the phone call. So he said to Ron, oh, he said, uh, he said, just say I'm not here. And Ron said, I can't do that. You are here. He said, yeah, I know, but pretend I'm not. He said, I can't. That would be lying. He said, oh, but it's okay. He said, no. He said, I'm sorry. I'm not prepared to do that. Because he said, if I'm prepared to lie for you, then how do you know that I'm not going to lie to you? And it, it, it really kind of struck his boss at the time. But that's the point. You know, we should be showing that we're different. We have a different set of standards in the world. Now, People might say that Paul was writing in a very different in time. You know, this is during the Roman Empire that he writes these things. You know, but the idea here is speaking about servants. He's talking about people who, in that context, were slaves. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were badly treated. A lot of slaves were actually very well looked after. Many were educated and cultured. Um, You know, there were those that were not treated well. But a lot of slaves are actually well treated, and it's not a lot different than we have today with our employment. We spend more time in our office environments or our work environments um, than we have to do with our families because of the nature of, of the way the work is. <clears throat> but of course, we have real freedom in Christ. And this is the difference. This is what makes the difference. You see, again, in Rome. A lot of the, the slaves weren't treated at the same level as the, the, the ones who owned them. And often bosses don't tend to look at employees with the same value that maybe they should. But that doesn't matter. That shouldn't affect us as Christians. Because our position is not found in the way or in the eyes of those that look at us from the world. Our position is in Christ. You know, we have been given this incredible position of being called the sons of God. We've been exalted to the highest place, in a sense, in in the universe, in the cosmos, because we have been accounted as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We have nothing to prove to this world. Paul goes on and says, and they don't have believing masters. Okay, so the first group he's talking about, just honor them whether they believe God or whether they don't believe, however they behave, just honor them, be a good witness, be an ambassador for Christ, he says in Corinthians as well. Uh, But they that have believing masters, let them not despise them uh, because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. So again, this idea that we should... um, 
just show honour, show respect. Chuck Mizzler made this comment. He said, uh, they did not speak out against the institutional aspects of slavery. This would have been disruptive and hindered the gospel. One must be careful in picking one's battles. You see, he's saying that those Christians that were serving masters didn't try to say, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, you should set me free. They understood the culture they're in. They understood the authority and the system and the government as it was. And within that, they still ministered, they still served, and they still sought to be an example. Then Paul says to Timothy, if any man teach otherwise, if they don't teach those things, and if they consent not to wholesome words, and he says this, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to, to godliness. I mean, this is an all-embracing all statement, really, because he's speaking of all the things that Jesus had spoken, that all the apostles and, and, and so on had reiterated and had become part of the teaching of the early church, of which much of that, of course, was drawn from the Old Testament. He says that, that's the, the foundation. If people don't stick to those things, if they start to come up with their own ideas, that are not according to the doctrine which has been handed down and passed and taught to you. He says this, he's proud. Anybody doesn't do those things, that doesn't hold to that doctrine, he's proud, knowing nothing. Yeah, the problem is people will try and present the fact that they, they know lots of things, that they're, they're very knowledgeable, and we have it today, don't we? You know, everybody likes to try and be one step above someone else. They like to be better than somebody else. I know something that somebody else doesn't know. I do find it quite amusing sometimes commuting on the train and seeing everybody dressed up with their suits on. And everybody's just trying to be a little bit better than someone else. Paul says, though, that these people, they're proud, they know nothing. Doting about questions and strifes of words. Whereof come envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. The conclusions people reach when they lay aside doctrine, when they lay aside truth will only lead to evil conclusions. In essence, what Paul is saying to Timothy is constantly monitor what is being taught. You know, and pride is often a badge of a false teacher as well. We need to be very cautious of those that come in and splash their credentials around and so on. He then goes on, he hasn't finished. He's only just getting warmed up at this point. Because then he goes on, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. Yeah, I kind of like this because Paul is kind of stepping outside that kind of comfort zone that Christians typically are expected to stay within. We're always expected to say nice things and do nice things. But when it comes to the truth, when it comes to people that would pervert the truth or teach another gospel or not stick to the doctrine that had been passed down, he goes on and says, these people, he said, the perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Uh, this is very much like Jesus when he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables. And you can imagine the look of horror among the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were there, the religious rulers of the day. Thinking, what right does this man have to do these things? And yet Jesus acting with righteous anger, goes in knowing that what they're doing is an abomination. That place should have been a house of prayer, and they've made it a house of merchandise. 
Paul speaking of the church and the way the church should be and people that won't hold to true doctrine. He speaks to them in this kind of very condemning manner. It's really almost aggressive tone. Perverse disputes of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. And he says, suppose that gain is godliness. From such withdraw yourself. Sadly, there's many, many people that are in pulpits and in churches around this country and around the world that seem to have this mindset that gain is godliness. That if they have a big building, if they have a large congregation, if they have the right attire, if they have the right car or helicopter or whatever else, that they somehow are are being godly and God is blessing them. I mean, it's horrific what happens. I mean, particularly, we, we see a lot of the abuse in America and on so-called Christian TV, but in other countries as well. Um, Norum, uh, my colleague at work, I've spoken about a number of times, uh, who's, in the, who's a Methodist lay reader, and pray for him because he's going through real challenges with that system at the moment and the things that are being brought in. Um, but he comes from Nigeria, and he's shared with me a number of times some of the uh, excesses that have gone on. Uh, in that land, people that have um, got great wealth from exploiting others in the name of Christianity, thinking that gain is godliness, that if they have more, if they have a, a nice Rolex gold watch, that, that somehow gives them position. Of course it doesn't. And Paul makes it very clear. He says, from such, withdraw yourself. Have nothing to do with people that are purely out for their own ends. And recognize, too, that this is how the enemy We'll try and bring down. Paul's already spoke, spoken about uh, the way that a fellowship or a church could be attacked from within. And these things can happen. We've got in America, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of it, the Jesus Seminar. Uh, this is an incredible thing where these so-called scholars got together, uh, again, thinking they had more knowledge than others. Um, and they decided they were going to vote upon which portions of the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, should be accepted. In other words, they were voting on the things that they thought Jesus did say and didn't say and so on. I mean, it's crazy. Um, you know, and we've got, as I said, people, uh, pulpits that fail to herald the atonement. They don't speak about the blood of Christ. They don't speak about redemption. It, it was interesting, we were talking on Thursday night, in our uh, Bible studies, we were talking and looking at the Jehovah's Witnesses that in their service as they have for baptism, salvation is not mentioned once. You know, and it's sad because in many churches, it's not a lot different. We know who the God of this world truly is. And we need to be aware that he's always going to try and deceive. Now, Paul goes on and says this great statement. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And it really is. You know, it doesn't, life doesn't consist of the abundance of things that we possess. It's not about stuff. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether we have a lot or whether we have little, it doesn't matter. But Godliness with contentment, being content in whatever circumstances the Lord has placed you. You, know, you, you don't know what's around the corner, what the Lord is going to do next. You may be about to lose everything. You may be about to gain all sorts of things. But that's irrelevant because that's all part of whatever God is doing in your life that you may be an effective minister and a a witness for him. The word contentment, it speaks of an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. 
I notice always that it's the wealthy people, not those, generally speaking, that are poor, who go to the psychiatrists and are more apt to attempt suicide. I was speaking a moment ago about the commuters we see on the train. And it's so sad how many of them choose to end their lives by jumping in front of trains or jumping onto the tracks. And, you know, it's quite a frequent thing and it's quite distressing. I'm sure you've heard over the last year or so um, in Canary Wharf area, a number of um, professionals, um, business people who have jumped from some of the tall buildings there just to end it all. Um, These are people that seemingly in the world's eyes have got everything, and yet they've got nothing. Because all the stuff that we can accumulate, all the stuff doesn't help us. It doesn't bring us peace. It doesn't bring us that joy that we're searching for in our hearts. Only Jesus Christ can bring that. And Paul says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. He makes this statement. You know, and people sometimes say when, when somebody dies, you know, what did they leave, or how much did they leave, were they wealthy, and so on. You know, Chuck Mizzler made this call, he said, yeah, when people die, they leave all of it, everything. You know, you don't take anything with you when you go. Everything remains. The only thing that goes is you, it's your soul. Now, we are told to lay up treasure in heaven, to send it on ahead. That's wisdom. But he says, goes on and says, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. You know, look, as long as you've got enough to eat and you've got something to wear, that's really all you need. Leon has been um, having interesting conversations at work uh, with a Quaker. Um, he seems to be an English Quaker, not necessarily a lot of spiritual depth there from what it seems. Um, this individual has been uh, challenging um, Leon, not, not in terms of questions, but just in terms of his mindset. Uh, Leon's been trying to, to get through to him, so pray for Leon as he has these conversations. But this was a typical Quaker invitation. I'm sure you're familiar with the Quakers who typically live a very simple life, and many of them are godly and they do believe and so on. Um, but I love this statement. He says, if ever thou needest anything, come to see me and I will tell thee how to get along without it. I, I, I like that because you know, so often we think we need something. Actually, we don't. You know, need is one of those words that we often band around. What we need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. What we need is to keep growing in knowledge and grace. What we need is to be daily praying and reading the Bible. So we get our spiritual food. That's what we need. The rest of it doesn't really matter. Henry David Thoreau reminded us that a a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Some wisdom in that statement. So simplify your way to real contentment as the, the lesson there. But they that will be rich fall into temptation. You see, notice the snare straight away. Those that are rich and have more want more. Those that are rich seem to want to carry on trying to satisfy and to fulfill those longings, those emptinesses they have. And notice, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. You see, all of a sudden, when you can acquire things, you want a bit more, and then you want a bit more, and it can just lead to destruction. This is exactly what this verse says, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Uh, you know, Paul is, is very articulate uh, in the way he speaks, and that comes across in, even in the English. Um, but this portion, this passage, is, is really one of Paul's finest in a sense, just trying to convey 
this feeling in his heart, the way that we should totally avoid those who are into wealth and riches and personal uh, you know, uh, missions to, to promote themselves, delusions of grandeur and so on. You know, but warning how dangerous these things can be. Some cross the finish line only to discover that they've entered the wrong race. What a tragedy if at the end of your life you've accumulated all sorts of things. You know, there's that old adage, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. There's a great line in the song by Casting Crowns. He who dies with the most toys still dies in the end. You know, and that's the reality. And then Paul says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. No, he doesn't say money is the root of all evil, but the love of money. That desire to keep acquiring and, and so on. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith. Isn't it sad that something as, as silly as money is can actually lead you away from a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ? It can get in the way. It can become a barrier between the one who paid a debt on your behalf that was so great that no money could have paid it. And he says, the people who have done this have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What a contrast to the one who was pierced for our transgressions. The people who allow the things of this world, the pursuit of riches and wealth and so on, to become something that actually separates them from God. Again, money is not evil in itself. It's amoral. It's what we do with it. It's that, you know, the obsession or pursuit of, the love of. Yeah, it may be all right to have what money you can buy if you do not lose what money you cannot buy. Is a statement I got from one commentator. I thought it was quite good. I'm sure you're familiar with the statement by Jim Elliot too. He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain Sorry, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep but to gain what he cannot lose. You know, and the things of this world, they're, they're transient, they're passing away. They're not the things we want to hold on to. We want to hold on to the things that are eternal, the things that are spiritual. Just very quickly, some scriptures. Um, greed is where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Of course, you're familiar with what Jesus says in Matthew six twenty-one. It's where your heart is there, your treasure is. Or greed is the the exact opposite of that. In John 10, you see, again, that it's the the hireling versus a true shepherd. Somebody who's willing to give it all as opposed to somebody who is wanting gain themselves. Again, wealth is not a sin. 1 Samuel 2, 7, 1 Corinthians 29, 12. And many scriptures that speak about those that have been wealthy, there's not a problem. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man used of God, and many others in Scripture, Abraham, Joseph, Solomon, all very wealthy. So the money is not the issue. Money, indeed, is a gift from God. I think somebody once asked Cliff Richard about why there's not more wealthy Christians, and his reply was something along the lines of, because God can't trust a lot of Christians with money. You know, and, and I think there's a, there's a, a, a kind of a, a sense of wisdom in that, because it's a, it goes very much in line with what Solomon says, Solomon said uh, in one of the Proverbs, something along the lines of, you know, don't leave me so poor that I end up stealing and curse your name. And don't give me so much that I become so wealthy that I forget about you. 
You know, God sometimes just has us in that middle place where we always, you know, need to keep trusting him, to keep going to him. You know, I, I've said before, you know, my cats, um, for those who have got two cats, Monty and Ali, they're getting older now, they're soon about to die, I think, which, you know, save me having to feed them every morning. But when I do feed them, it's quite funny because they, they do this lovely little thing where they kind of walk around my legs and I, I hold my hand up and they both jump up uh, and they kind of rub their, their heads against my hand. And it's quite a kind of a cute little thing they do. Uh, and sometimes I make them wait just a little bit longer for their food just so they keep doing it because it's quite good fun. But there's something lovely about the fact that, that, that they give me that attention and that affection because they know they, they're in need. Now, as soon as they get their food, that's it. They don't want to know me anymore. They're, they're, that's it. The typical cats. And then they go out and spend their day doing what they do sleeping most of it but sometimes I think God does a little bit like that with us just allows us to be in places where we recognize our need so that we reach out to him because actually sometimes when we've got everything we need we don't reach out to him because we're comfortable you know believers should be willing to part with their money when God requires a number of scriptures that allude to that See, the idea of this money love ignores true gain, which is godliness. It focuses on the temporal. I'll leave you to look at some of these scriptures if you want to. It obscures the simplicity of life. It results in sinful entrapment and succumbing to harmful desires and eternal judgment. And James gives us warnings about these things. See, man's purposes for money are very simple. It's to provide for security. It's to establish independence. And those things aren't necessarily wrong, but then it gets a little bit further away from a straight line. It's to create power and influence. You see, you can contrast that to God's way and man's way. See, for man, it's all about power and position. But God's way is all about submission. The emphasis from man's perspective is on our rights, our freedoms. And for God's way, it's all about personal responsibility. Man's perspective is all about desire, what we want, gaining things for ourselves. From God's way, it's meeting the needs of others. It's completely spun around. Man's way, it's all about the immediate fulfillment. That's what we're concerned with. God's way, God speaks of lasting achievement. Crowns that are imperishable, as opposed to that which just fades. Our yearning from man's perspective is the praise of men. As I said earlier, the, the men on the train with the suits and so on. And, you know, we see in almost in any industry, any walk of life, we all like that, that recognition from other people. But God's way is about approval of God. It doesn't matter what men think or other people think. It doesn't matter whether we're up with the latest fashions or not. In regard to aspiration, man's aspiration is to be served. We want to put ourselves in that position where people respect us and we feel that we're being treated as we should be. But God's way is all about serving others. Didn't Jesus take that towel and do what a servant would have done? And typically that that would have been not just a servant, but the lowest servant in the household would go and wash the feet of those dusty travelers in Judea when they came to the house. They'd bring a bowl of water and they'd cleanse and clean someone's feet and then they'd go and empty that and bring a clean bowl and do the next individual. 
That's what a servant would do. And Jesus gives us that example to show us how we should be servants. We should put ourselves at the bottom, not the top. Man's need is all about pushing ahead, striving for more. God's way is all about patience. It's a complete contrast in these approaches. Man's way is about striving to, to lead men. Whereas God's way, we should be striving to follow God. Man's way, again, our interest is in competition. Proving ourselves better than another. And God's way, it's about cooperation. You know, it's that swimming pool mentality that I've spoken about before. You know, there's two ways you can get out of a swimming pool if you've got somebody else with you. You can put your hand up on their head and push them down and that gives you some leverage to get out. That's kind of the, the, the worldly approach though. It's, it's, it's getting a jump on someone else so that you're in a better position than they are. But you know, God would have us that we work together, that we help each other, we bear each other's burdens. In terms of our motivation for man, it's all about self-glorification as opposed to God's way being for God's glory. And so, you know, looking at the contrast in God's purposes for money, is provision, direction, for fellowship, and for demonstration. I'll let you look at those scriptures if you want to. Uh, these slides will be online later on. You see, again, God's purposes for money is to provide basic needs is to establish daily dependence on him. It's to deepen our love for the Lord. To develop a spirit of gratefulness. And to teach us to live within our means. And to help us to enjoy our possessions. That's the first one, the provision. Next one. To confirm direction. To build our faith and vision. To determine who the Lord of our life really is. To protect us from harmful items. Lusts that would lead us astray and so on. To teach us patience. To concentrate on true riches. The third one, giving. To Christians, typically. To unite Christians. To demonstrate the mark of a Christian. To initiate spontaneous thanksgiving. To multiply the potential for giving. You know, this church over the years has been a, a blessing to many people. We were, before we were part of this church, many years ago, we were in a position um, where I was made unemployed. Um, we went through a very difficult time. And this church provided for us in a way that I could have never imagined. The outpouring of love was incredible. And we've had opportunity here to provide and bring blessing to people. It was an honor and a privilege that we had to be able to support and help with Lekin and with the visa thing. But that was a blessing for all of us. And what a blessing because Lekin's been such a blessing to us as a fellowship. So glad to have you with us. But you know, there's others here that as a church we've been able to help and support financially, you know, at different times. And that's a really good thing. There's something so wonderful about that. So different to the world's approach. And ultimately it's to illustrate God's power. It's to cause Christians to trust in him. In him. Malachi speaks about this. It's one of the tests God gives us to see if God won't open the windows of heaven 
And we learn to trust him with our finances. And it's to mock the false gods of our age and to purify our lives and motives and to bring non-Christians to salvation. These are the things that God would have us do and obviously to glorify God. So, move on. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. We, we could spend the whole morning just going through this list. I encourage you to go home, look at this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Just look at these things. These are the things that Timothy says we should follow after. He's giving you a whole bunch of stuff that's going to do damage. This is the stuff that we need to be focusing on. It's again, in contrast to the false teachers. Okay, But thou, this is what you're to do. This is what we're to do. And I want a, a title as well that, we, that Timothy's given here, Man of God, in good company. Moses is given that title, Samuel, Elijah, David, and Joseph also, uh, even when tempted by another's wife, uh, stays true to God. And David, when he tried to kill Saul, uh, that title, Man of God. <clears throat> See, these things, just very briefly, just highlight righteousness. It refers to personal integrity. The idea is being right with God. It's being able to shine a spotlight in your life with nothing to censor. Godliness, it refers to practical piety. Again, the first is to do with character, the second with conduct. Then faith, again, faithfulness, dependability, love, is that, that Greek word agape, unconditional love. Love that sacrifices for others, not looking at what you can gain. And then patience, that's that perseverance. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. I'm sure you're familiar with the old adage, but it's true in this context. And then meekness, which is not weakness, it's power under control. It's knowing how to use power and how to be restrainful when necessary. Exercising restraint would have been better grammar. I apologize for that. We'll leave it like that. We must also cultivate these graces of the Spirit in our lives, or else we will be known only for what we oppose rather than for what we propose. I like that statement. You see, not all unity is good and not all division is bad. Fight the good fight of faith. Another great statement of, of Paul's to Timothy here. It is a fight. It is a challenge. It's not always easy. Even the things we've looked at so far this morning, it's not just a, a walk in the park. It requires effort. It requires mental concentration and the fact that we've got to be renewed in our minds. Because the natural man doesn't follow after these things, doesn't receive these things. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. I love that idea. Laying hold, grasping, reaching out for Grabbing almost as if you're on the edge of a cliff and you're, you're holding on tightly. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Paul is saying to Timothy that he's been a good ambassador for Jesus Christ. And really this is an admonition to continue doing what he was doing. That word fight, is, is the word is agone, it's from where we get agony. That's the intensity that Paul is implying here. It should be a struggle or a straining to win. And Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, we'll get to it, uh, Lord willing, in chapter 4, verse 7, says, I have fought the good fight. Same word again. again. But it's uh, not between believers. Again, let's remember who the enemy is. And then he says this, I give thee charge in the sight of God, 
who quickens all things and before Christ Jesus, and he gives us this example, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession or more, more accurately a profession. Jesus showed himself by his character, by his nature, by the things that were said, and also his meekness that he demonstrated. Huge power, so much power. But Jesus waited patiently, didn't speak, didn't answer in front of Pilate. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable. This is how the church should be anyway. We should be without spot, without blemish and so on. But in all of these things, fighting this fight that we're fighting against, the, against sin, the world, the devil, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable. I love that. There's nothing to censor. That's the idea. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this isn't just a this week thing. This is something we carry on doing week after week after week after week until the Lord returns. And that appearing is an epiphany, epiphany, the idea. Again, he knows his schedule. He knows when he's returning. Our task is to be faithful every day and abide in him. And notice this. Now, we were talking on Thursday about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they've set many dates for when they think the Lord was returning. And they've given us dates when they think the Lord has come back, that Jesus has come back. And then because it wasn't physical, they said, well, you must have come back spiritually at that point. And then they've changed the dates. No, no. We're told here very clearly, 1 Timothy 6.15, take your JW to this when he comes and knocks your door, that which in his times he shall show. Right? This isn't for us to know. This is something that God knows, that Jesus knows, and it will be in his time, not in our time, not when we sit down with a slide and a compass and a set rule and all these kind of tools and try and work out mathematically when we think Jesus is coming back. That's not going to accomplish anything. It's in his time which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. I love this because, once again, Jehovah's Witnesses will tell us that Jesus is not God. Well, how can you read this and see anything other than a declaration of Christ's deity here? He is returning in his time, and he is the blessed and only potentate. There is no other. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Again, we need not fear life because God is the ruler of all. And we need not fear death because he shares immortality with us. He's the one who only has immortality, and because he has life, because he is life, he gives us that new life. And then, just to conclude, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So one of the greatest dangers of wealth is it tends to make one proud, and then one then understands neither himself nor his wealth. Deuteronomy 8, 18 is a reference to that. Yeah, we are not owners, we're only stewards. Everything that God gives you, you're only a steward of it. A, a little bit like, in a sense, the land of Israel is for the Jews. It's God's land. He's entrusted it to them. Well, all the things that you have, God has entrusted to you as to see how you're going to use them. They that do good, sorry, uh, yeah, they that do good, they that be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come 
that they may hold, may lay hold on eternal life. Again, really speaking of laying up that treasure in heaven, those things that are waiting us. See, we trust God, not in wealth. And the pursuit of wealth is often evidence of insecurity. Uh, certainly, that's true in this world. Uh, again, we can't take it with us in a material sense, but in a spiritual sense, we can certainly send it on ahead, as we've already seen. And then just to conclude, Paul says, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. You know, even the things we've read this morning, they've been committed to our trust. These are spiritual truths that the Lord has allowed us to understand. and we, 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 We're beneficiaries of this wisdom. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Now, we could spend a long time, and because of the time, we're not. I've got a whole bunch of slides here. I was going to just take you through and show you once again that so many of the things that science claims they have no foundation for. And, of course, there is nothing greater uh, in terms of the absurdity of man um, than the theory of evolution. Somebody was talking to me last week um, and they were saying about um, the, the challenges and the problems that, that we've got of things that have come over from America. Um, lots of ideas and things and Halloween typically is kind of one of those things that's become so commercialized. And I just jokingly, I said, yeah, I said, we got our own back though because we gave them evolution. And it, but it is such a nonsense. It's such a thing that's, that's grabbed people's minds. But it is, it's not science. You know, there is no scientific foundation to it. Yes, many scientists invest their lifetime in it. But really, only because they get the grants. They don't do it because of the science of evolution. Because there is none. It's all based upon hypothesis and, and ideas and putting it way back in the past so that it really can't be something we can test or measure or look at from the scientific method anyway. But more than just that, Paul, I don't think, is just talking about science in that sense. And, and, and you know, that Paul took on the, um, uh, the wisdom of the day when he went to Athens, when he went to Mars Hill, debated with the philosophers. And some of these ideas may well have come up. But... The idea here, the word that Paul's looking at, um, is the idea here. Um, he's talking about this knowledge, okay? Um, because the, the word uh, that we have here, the, the idea in science here is knowledge. And of course, at that time, we had the Gnostic cults who were claiming a special kind of knowledge uh, and putting themselves above others. And I think Paul is saying to Timothy, that you know, you be careful because there are people that are going around claiming they have special knowledge, special understanding. You know, it, it's knowledge falsely so-called, science falsely so-called, vain babblings. He's saying, be careful of those people uh, that go around claiming they have new knowledge. And actually, that really speaks quite clearly about all the cults, because all the cults will tell you they have some new knowledge, some new information. You know, there's always some individual that had some revelation or some understanding that was hidden up until that point. So anything like that, always avoid. Be so careful of those things. Again, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And then it just concludes, it says, the first, to, um, the first to Timothy was written from Laodicea, which is the chiefest city of Phygia. Uh So this is the, the conclusion we have to this um, 
letter, uh, the, the pronoun, second person, plural, grace be with all of you, is what Paul was saying. And Paul had the entire church in mind when he wrote this letter, not just Timothy. It wasn't just about giving Timothy counsel, it was about helping the church understand their responsibility to do these things. And hopefully as we've gone through this uh, over this uh, period of time, as we've been looking at this first letter, there's been some little nuggets here that help us understanding how a church should be, how we should function, uh, and how our own lives should be in response to these things. Okay, read ahead um, in a few weeks' time when uh, we've got a few Sundays uh, with different things going on, uh, but we're going to get into Second Timothy, so um, just start reading ahead, read the first couple of chapters if you can, um, study it by all means, go through some commentaries, uh, really allow the Lord to start teaching you uh, so that we can grow together and see what Paul said to Timothy in his second letter, one of uh, his last. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Well, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of coming into your presence to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the the many reminders this morning of your goodness, of your grace. Lord, of your kindness, which leads us to repentance. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are all we need. And Lord, help us not to crave or desire the things that this world does. But Lord, to recognize that in you, we have an abundance. Lord, we have riches beyond compare. And Lord, we have the promise of eternal life with you. Father, thank you this morning that we've been able to celebrate the communion again to remind ourselves, Lord, what you did for us, the price you paid, the value you put on each one of us. Oh Lord, impress these things upon our hearts and minds, we ask. And bless us now as we fellowship together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you. Let's spend some time fellowshipping over some teas and coffees.